Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 32 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and on this episode, we'll be looking back at two glorious weeks of golf at Royal Melbourne. Adam Scott and Jason Day, of course, gave the local fans plenty to smile about with a couple of home victories, but our focus today will be more on the course itself, not only how it stands up to the modern test, but a chat about its rightful place in the game internationally. We'll probably also have a chat about this week's Australian Open at Royal Sydney, and in particular, we'll get a first-hand report on the state of Rory McIlroy's game from a man who saw it up close during Tuesday's practice round. Let me bring him in and my other co-host for the day, blogger, writer, critic Jeff Shackelford. Jeff, you didn't see Rory's game up close on Tuesday during the practice round, but it's good to have you aboard today. Now. But I am looking forward to uh, hearing Clayt's uh, assessment of Rory's game. Yes, indeed. And Clayt's, of course, our other co-host, as always, from here in Sydney, writing for AustralianOpenGolf.com.au and doing a little bit of Australian Open TV stuff I see on their website. They're, uh, they're doing a pretty good job of the website, I think, this year with Andy Marr from Melbourne doing interviews with people and whatnot. Mike Clayton, great to have you up here in Sydney. Looking forward to getting your thoughts today. Thanks, Rod. It's a beautiful day. They're already playing, I guess. What's it, 7 o'clock? They've just teed off. So They've just teed off, yeah, exactly. Looks like a perfect Indeed. day here. Indeed. We'll come to the Australian Open shortly, Clayton, and we'll get your thoughts. Of course, you caddied for a young kid uh, who played his practice round with Rory on Tuesday, or 12 holes. So you did write about it, but we want to get uh, some thoughts about that. But we'll do that a little bit later. I wanted to go back first to the two weeks of golf we just saw at Royal Melbourne. You're going to be doing most of the heavy lifting today, Clates, because you were there. Start with just a bit of a thumbnail sketch. What were your sort of first thoughts after the Masters and, you know, maybe the first day's play there? What were your sort of thoughts on how the course stood up to the modern players and, uh, and what we saw? Was it, was it uh, good, entertaining golf? I know you always enjoy Royal Melbourne, but uh, did it stack up for you, Masters and World Cup week? It did. I mean, the, the course is always the star there. You know, it's, a, it's a bit like Titleist to don't hire these massive name players because they're not going to pay guys crazy amounts of money. Royal Melbourne is so Titleist is always the star in that company. Royal Melbourne's always the star when the tournament comes there. I, I don't care who plays it; the golf course is always the star. Uh, it plays short now. I mean, you rarely see guys use drivers off the tee more than four or five times around. Whereas thirty years ago, the only hole that wasn't a driver probably was the the hole they played as the sixth last week, the tenth on the west. So it plays short. They've got new grass on the fairways, which has stopped the ball running a little, so that helps put some length back on it. Uh, the only defence, really, against someone shooting 20 under par are crazy fast greens. I mean, they were officially 13-point-something, but you can bet by the end of the day they were 15 as they dry out and get quick. And So, you know, we, for 40 years we've seen Royal Melbourne sort of pushing the boundaries of speed on greens, which makes play slow because you never really, from outside 20 foot, get the ball within four feet or rarely. You, you see so many guys putting from three, four, five, and six feet if they're outside of 20 or 25 feet from the hole with their approach. Um, what else happened down there? I know. Well, just on that, Clayton, I, I wanted to ask you about this because I know that yeah. uh, we all talk firm and fast and you've always sort of cautioned against being too firm and too fast because golf can get silly. There were a couple of questionable things happened, weren't there? I remember seeing, I think it was VJ hit a shot into the fourth when the pin was tucked over the bunker. I don't know what hole that is on the normal, but fourth on the tournament course as we yeah, saw it. Six, yeah, he he got within, got within six feet of the flag and ended up in the little pitching area, you know, yeah. 40 metres down the front of the green. And I must say, you know, if the ball had bounced through the back, you go, that's good, firm, fast goal. But that looked questionable to me. I mean, he hit a good shot to hit it within six feet of the target, I thought. Um, how, did you, how did you rate the sort of setup and how they did it? Because they, they did get pretty, pretty firm, didn't they? Well, we're at green on the sixth west, the fourth hole, where that Welsh kid made an 11. Um, they're going to change it after the tournament. I, I played there a year or two ago. I had a five iron up on the six or eight or ten feet up onto the green. It came off that edge. And I'd never seen that happen before. And, of course, they all come back into that one little pocket. So they're forever chipping out of the same square foot square foot down at the bottom of the hill. So they're going to change that green, I, I think, and they're not too you – know, I, mean, I mean, Tom Doak, I think, is out here this week or next week. So they're going to change the front of that green to stop the ball coming off. Not, not a big change, but I, I think everyone's recognised that way too many balls are coming off mm. the front of that green. Mm. Because it gets so fast, partly it's because of the fescue at the front, which has been you know, a great innovation at Royal Melbourne has been putting those fescue fringes in. But that was one green where there, where there was some crazy stuff happening. Mm. 
It, it seemed to me, Clates, and, and this probably speaks to a whole bunch of stuff, including the modern professional game, we seem to see a lot more double bogeys over the two weeks, both the Masters and the World Cup of Golf, than we're probably used to. It seemed that if players hit it out of position, they're almost surprised by just how difficult it was to get back in position. Am I imagining something there? But it just seemed that we didn't see as many sort of, you know, on week in and week out, you see these guys make bogeys from amazing positions. We didn't see that somewhere. They, they couldn't save themselves having hit it out of position. Well, yeah, as you say, it's, it's, well, that's why it's a great course. It's so hard to get back in position. I saw uh, Richard Sterney or Brandon Grace, I get them mixed up on the playing for South Africa, hit over the back of the 11th West and you know, it wasn't a hard chip. It was an easy chip to get on the green, but he tried to get it close, and the ball got up. You know, it got up over the fescue, got a foot onto the green, but on the slope, and it just came back to his feet. And so you just make a double bogey from nowhere. But because you're trying to save a par, if you were content to make a bogey, you'd do it all day at Royal Melbourne. But you know, it's when you try and save the par that you make the six. And Adam Scott had that crazy nine the first day where he hit. I mean, that's the hardest driving hole at Royal Melbourne. The second on the east, the Played as the twelfth last week, but I mean, he just flew a couple of two irons, unplayable on the right, and made nine. And I mean, Manly made the eleven, but that was just going—I didn't see it—but that was just going back and forth, up and down the slope. I think. Uh, he hit one over the so, back, I think, and then one down the slope, and then a couple well, of from there. Yeah, drove in the rubbish, then sculled a bunker shot, and so yeah, the, 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 there are double bogeys there because, and it goes back to that—the thing about if you get out of place and you get thirty feet away for a par. You're always you you nearly always finish up with a four or five footer for a bogey, mm. and you miss those. And mm. yeah. Shaq, watching from America, did that? Did you sort of notice that? It just really stood out to me. We just seemed to see a lot of doubles. You know, the, yeah, the guys would make big numbers that they're not used to, and you could almost see them feeling a bit punch drunk walking off greens, going, "How did I make six from there?" You know, back home I would have made five or four from there every day of the week. Yeah, and we. Uh... We had well, we have the same telecast uh, feed you have. Uh, is it Channel Seven? Seven, is yeah. that correct? So, and and Ian Baker Finch is is uh, he's so much better than he is in the U.S. because he's he's essentially can talk when he wants. Here, he's always having to to throw things to commercial or read a promo or uh, share the time with other people. So he flushes out ideas and and really sets up how the holes are playing and some of the things that the guys are facing and. And you can tell in his voice, uh, uh, and and he's a, you know such a nice guy. But even he is, you could tell he's watching some of this and 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 questioning some of the management of the course. Um, the the thing that that wasn't clear though, and these guys making some of those numbers, Clates is, um, and then and and in week two during the World Cup, the conditions got a little bit edgy, and some of the guys were were uh, borderline critical or very critical and. Uh, what 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 wasn't clear was could they land the ball short of some of the greens that they were they were suggesting were over the top because I didn't see a lot of people approaching greens and landing the ball short and and uh, trying to run it up. No, very few do that. But but I mean you can. They've got twenty feet of fescue at the front probably. Yeah. The, the problem is, I mean, the, the one course in Australia where you can do that perfectly is Bamboogle because. It's you know the fescue fairways and fescue greens. So wherever your ball lands, it's landing on the same surface and getting the same bounce. So you can land fifty yards short of the greens there and run the ball on. Royal Melbourne, you're landing in the in, in the, uh, the the cooch fairways, which don't run at all. So you've got to carry the Bermuda cooch slash legend grass and get onto the fescue. But if you you know if you miss it by a couple of feet, the, the ball will just stop. It just kills it dead. Mm. So you. Whereas at Bamboogle you're playing, and, and the old course and all those great British links where you run the ball around, you're playing f- from one surface onto the same surface. But at Royal Melbourne you're playing off the cooch, through the fescue, onto the bent grass, and they're, and they're three distinctly different speeds and surfaces. So it makes it trickier. That was mm. a criticism of the lakes before you got hold of it, wasn't it, Clates? They tried having sort of three different grasses around the lakes and, and it made play well, awkward, didn't it? Well, well, they had four. They had Kutfia, <laughs> Cooch, Rye, and then Ben. So it was it was well. well the biggest criticism when we had it was that it looked awful. Mm. Uh, I mean, the biggest criticism now at the lakes is it's all Kaikuya, so it makes it harder to run. But you know, I, I think the point we're getting to is these guys complain they can't run the ball up, but how many of them would run it up if they could anyway? Mm. Because you know, yeah, 
uh, Jeff Ogilvy was it was hitting a shot into the eleventh west in a practice round. And it was into the wind, and I was walking around with Dale Lynch, and I said, you know, he hit a high bomb up onto the green, and it was a good shot. But I said, do these guys ever see that running shot? He said, they just never see it. So, you know, it's uh, it's the way the modern game is, and uh, and I think going back to why I saw it, Royal Melbourne, is you see, you know, we were going to bang on again, but. The equipment, everyone just hits the same drive on every hole, pretty much. You, you know, it's yeah. just that, that, you know, I mean, the, 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 they're terrific players, no doubt, but the ball and the driver makes these guys look so impressive off the tee, and you just you wonder what it would be like if they, you threw them a ballada ball and a wooden driver and whether they would look so good. Mm. Well, well, yeah, it's, <laughs> we do bang on about it a bit, don't we? I, 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 I still think about what Matthew Goggin told us on here, Clates, which was, you know, we, we give it to the modern players and it's all too easy because you can just smash at it. But he said flat out, these guys are really good. You give them whatever you want, they'll figure it out. They, we shouldn't be too harsh on the players. They really are playing what they have to play. I mean, you know, you, you, can't, yeah. you don't have a choice, do you, with the modern equipment? You've got to play the Bashett game. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, even if uh, if you didn't want to, there, there what the I think the the criticism that Shaq's referring to there, I think it was Jason Day on yeah. McDowell's behalf said, you know, this is crazy. He hit a ball. I think it was on the the tenth of the tournament course, which might be eighteen west. Is it? I can't keep up yeah. plates with yeah. what. <laughs> it bounced on the front of the green and went over the back into the bunker. Is that a bit harsh? I mean, as you're saying, well, you know, you had to carry it to the front of the green. The pin was sort of three quarters of the way back. That's kind of a half run up idea is to land it short and still couldn't. Yeah, well, I, mean, I saw a lot of shots into that green and didn't see anything like that. It was, I mean, the green played the way it always had, and it's it's you know, completely predictable, really. In fact, in fact, I would argue it's much easier. You've just got to pitch to the front of the green and just run the ball back to the hole. It's not that hard to do. Mm-hmm. Apparently it is. Um, <laughs> for, but, you know, there's a kid who's indoctrinated with American golf. Mm. So, so you know, he's used to seeing the ball hit and stop. Mm. It's yeah, a, he plays Merrifield Village. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the ultimate hit and stop. It's a very yeah. different sort of golf, isn't it, Clates? You've played golf around the world, and that is a very different sort of golf. If you play that 48 weeks a year or 40 weeks a year, it does make it somewhat awkward to adapt, I would imagine. Well, they get paid a lot of money to figure out how to adapt. <laughs> Not like yeah. they're working, not working Monday to Wednesday, are they? Uh, with no chance to to get out on the course. What was your overall impressions, Clay? Who did you get out and watch? Uh, was there anybody you were particularly interested to see that we don't see a lot of normally that you got out to follow? What were some of the interesting things that happened at RM that we might not have seen on the coverage or covered in the papers or on the web during or after the week? Uh, I watched the first week Brendan Dijon because he played with Ogilvy, so I watched him, and it, it just reinforces how what a great way to play golf. It is when you take the club inside and bring it out, as Sneed and Jones and Stadler and Parry and Litsky and lots of other guys have done. So he, he takes it way back on the inside and then, and then brings it, not over it, but he brings it out onto the plane and then comes down. And you see these guys who, who lose their games. Like, I mean, Ian Baker Finch is a good example. They always lose it because they're inside and they're, fl- and they're flipping the ball over. And these guys who go the other way, they're such safe players. So... I didn't see him play, and he just hit a hard, ripping cut down every hole. He played, he played really well the first week. The second week, not so good, but he was good the first week. Because um, you followed Ogilvy, I would imagine, for most of the yeah, yeah, he's played a few days. First mm. week, did you get a chance to have a look at Adam Scott? It was quite the majestic performance, wasn't it? I mean, boy, I, boy doesn't he drive it like Greg Norman used to? He does, yeah, um, yeah. He's playing, he's playing really well. Mm. Oh, oh, well, obviously, he's, you know, he's a beautiful player to watch. So. The thing that amazes me about golf down here and probably golf everywhere is that you know, Melbourne's a big golf city, but you know, you've got one of the most elegant players ever to play, really, and certainly one of the most elegant modern players playing a great golf course, and the crowds are still not very good. And it keeps coming back to the people who play golf just aren't particularly interested in it. Mm. They, they, they take out of the game what they take out of it for their own pleasure and you know, for, for their own reasons, but... It amazes me that you can have such a beautiful player playing a great course, and you know, the crowds are okay, but you know people don't flock to the golf like they used to. Or, or you know, it's kind of disappointing in a sense. But well, those yeah. those scenes from the '90s, Clates. I don't know where it was taken. They might have been hunting though, that famous photo of I think it's Norman and Faldo standing on the tee, and people are six deep across yeah. the back of the tee and down yeah. each side of the fairway and around the green. It's like a little 
sort yeah. of stadium. We don't certainly don't see that anymore. So I think that's probably partly to do with television too, isn't it? We see these players every week, and when you know you, you watch Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson, you know, on average once or twice a month, you'll see one or two or three of the world's best players. Unless they're going to be here in the flesh, people won't bother getting off their bum to go and watch it. You know, yeah, just Adam Scott isn't enough to bring out enough people. You know, we saw at the Presidents Cup. Uh, the Australian Open of the President's Cup week, people did come out to, to the lakes, didn't they? Because you had so many great players. But if yeah. you only got one or two, people just think, oh, it's not worth it. I can see them on TV yeah. week in and week out, which probably hasn't done much for us. What was the atmosphere like, Clates? Those who did go, were they, I think McDowell said a few times in the two weeks, that, in the week that he was here, that, you know, they're very educated, the fans, and that was one of the great things about playing down here. Did you, apart from the fanatics, which we won't talk about, yeah. uh, were, the, <laughs> were the crowds generally sort of knowledgeable? How was the interaction in that way? Do you think the players enjoyed playing in front of the crowds as well? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I mean, it seemed you know, just it seemed it didn't seem a lot different from any other tournament, really, to be fair. But, but yeah, the crowds down here have always known their golf and sort of behave more like English crowds and American crowds in a sense. But you know, it's um, where they tend to be much louder. And I mean, I know the first time I went, I went to that Open at Bethpage in two thousand and two, it was staggering the crowd, and it was like I'd never seen anything like it in golf. But um, yeah, that, that, that were good tournaments. Uh, you know, the, clearly the the World Cup was a it was a terrific feel for a tournament that was a one or two million dollar tournament. For as an eight million dollar tournament, it was a crazy field. You know, that that field could play for that amount of money was pretty staggering. What's going on with that, Shaq? This is a broader question about the game, isn't it? You put up an eight million dollar purse, one point five million US to the winner, limited field event. And a bunch of people who are eligible to contest for that don't bother turning up. Appearance fees, uh, just the season being too long, it's uh, it's a litany of things. Uh, but, I mean, those are easily, you know, it's a long way for a lot, some people to get there. But those first two are the real reasons. And, um, and the weekend, and, you know, players don't care. Shark. I can I can recall, was it the 99 they had the World Golf match play down here? Clates at Metro? Yeah. 2001, yeah. 2001. I remember David Duval, distinctly I remember David Duval saying, you know, well, if I go down there and get knocked out first week, I only break even. <laughs> it's yeah. $25,000 for last place. I mean, you can kind of laugh at that, but is that that's part of the problem, surely, is that players have got so much money that purses are no longer going to attract them the way they used to, you know, back in the in the 70s, Clates, when we used to get Nicholas and Player and Palmer, they didn't come here just because they loved the place. It was a nice place to come, but there was money in it, wasn't there? And they needed the money. These guys don't. Well, and they all go to great places now, so they don't need the vacation or the fun week. I mean, Matt Kuchar seems to, to go down there for that reason still, which is refreshing. He seems to love it there. But, uh, yeah, it's, this is going to be a continuing dilemma. And, of course, we know none of them care about the golf course as long as it doesn't uh, offend them. They really just don't care where they play. Uh, if it does, uh, let's be honest, yeah. they'll still turn up because that's yeah. kind of their job. Yeah. On that, Clates, I was very impressed with Kevin Streelman. Um, I didn't realize that uh, – he was kind of as knowledgeable as he seemed to be. It was a revelation to me. He caddied at the Chicago Golf Club, apparently, from the time he was 12 and said that from the time he was 13 or 14, he was aware of Royal Melbourne and had looked forward to coming here. I thought he did a fantastic job of uh, being an ambassador for the game and for American golf uh, while he was here and played fantastically, obviously, in the first round, in particular at the World Cup as well. A friend of mine walked around with him on Monday, I think, and he was, uh, he was a golf architecture nerd like, Many of us down here, and, and he said he was. You know, they just walked around nine holes and just talked about the golf course. He said it was terrific fun, and he, he clearly knew a lot about it. And, and he played well. I watched him play a little on the Friday, and he was. He, he made a yeah. He, I mean, he made a double from nowhere on the on the eleventh west. Just a crazy double. He shot sixty nine, I think, the second day. But yeah, that was sort of going back to that. He had a nice drive into the just into the corner bunker on the on on the left that guards the best line of the flag, and then he knocked it out in the greenside bunker and. Bladed it over the back and you're done. You struck. You actually made a four or five foot putt for a seven, for a six. So. It was a good six, wasn't it? In the end, <laughs> that was a shocking bunker shot he hit from the greens. It was almost yeah. a shank, I think, or a half shank that uh, that he hit from there. And you're right. You walk off the, the hole and say, "Well, I, you know, I hit a pretty good drive there." And it did hit a pretty good drive. It was just three feet too far left, and it's in the bunker. And one of those. You yeah, look back from the green clates, shaking your head, saying, how did I manage that? You couldn't manufacture that if you tried to make sort of six. Uh, six well, yeah, that's the annoying thing about the golf course is there's 50 yards to the right on that fairway. To, you know, but you, you're only making a, 
you know, if you play to the right, the best you can do is 30 or 40 feet and the best you can do from there is sort of three or four feet. But, you know, if you get down the left, you can, you know, if you hit a really a, a good enough shot, you can make a three. So that's the and temptation. Isn't that the, well, it's the recipe of great golf courses, isn't it, Clates? They make you think on the tee and, and, and you try to do more than perhaps you're capable of in order to get a reward that is much harder to come by than it might look. Yeah, you know, that, that's the great dog leg left par four. Just really, there are two fairway bunkers on the left. One's a very short one, but there's really, so, so there's really one bunk green play on the left, and there's a, the green's just orientated just a little from left to right, and there's one big bunker on the right of the green, and, you know, it's a great lesson in just simple, sensible design, really, without over-bunkering it or overdoing it and trying to be too clever, but, yeah, it's a beautiful hole. Yeah, and should make four there every time. Shaq, as a viewing experience from the States, um, to me, it's a very different viewing experience to what we see most weeks. I find it really compelling watching golf at, at, at Royal Melbourne in particular for this very reason that, that, you know, doubles are only ever just around the corner. And even right up until the last putt goes in on the 18th on Sunday, particularly watching the World Cup with Jason Day there, he had a couple of opportunities to, to really get himself into trouble, played beautifully to, to avoid that and, and to get the win. But it's compelling, isn't it? There, there doesn't seem to be any moment where the tournament's over yet until it's actually over. There's a six around every corner, isn't there? I find it really compelling stuff. Yeah, you you feel uh, like if you turn it off, you're going to miss something, and uh, and I, I think they there there are a number of factors for us here why it's compelling viewing. Uh, the uh, of course the look of the courses is so different than anything we get. I think the Channel Seven does a, a, an excellent job. I love their their whole graphics are are great. Um, again, having Baker Finch not having to uh, worry about uh, other uh, distractions, being able to actually commentate is super uh now the, the the one thing that was disappointing and we talked about it before the week uh, on one of our other shows was that, that that the setup was exactly the same for the two tournaments which was uh, when when you think i mean if there's one place on, on the planet where you could uh substitute at least one hole uh uh and we, we talked about the uh, uh what is it the fourth on the uh, the east kind yeah, of easily yeah, yeah. um yeah, that that's and and I talked to actually uh, Ben Crenshaw in the middle of this, and he was he was glued, of course. And and the one thing that stood out to him was that with the current composite course, the 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 seventeenth uh, hole of the of this composite, the first on the west, is uh, yeah, it's a fine hole. It's but but at that point in the round, it's just a it's just yeah. a uh, it's yeah, a killer. It's, it's just yeah. uh, not what you want from a seventeenth hole. Um, so that was that to me was really disappointing that the and I, and I you know I shouldn't be surprised I mean the tour just it was a last minute thing and they uh, to, to to go to this event and they really couldn't get too carried away but it would have been nice that the one thing Clates I, I was curious about uh, and and really got my attention was and I, yeah I tried to find some articles to see how the maintenance of the greens went because uh, early on in the Masters. The uh, the greens were were kind of uh, on the the slower holding side, and Baker Finch was great to say, you know, now we've got two weeks here, so uh, this is okay, you know, this is this is not a, a bad thing. And then sure enough, it it got a little bit dicey in in week two, and I wondered if if they gave the greens a break on that uh, Monday in between because uh, all I could think about was, wow, what are they going to do at Pinehurst in the U.S. Open next year? Uh, when they're going to championship maintenance conditions for two weeks, it's they. I don't. They're going to have a hard time slowing the greens down for the women in the second week. But did they do anything to? I mean, I, you know, it's it's because nobody's really ever had two weeks of championship yeah. golf in a row like that. Well, we played at Kingston Heath about nineteen ninety four or five. We played two weeks in a row there, but oh. um, the weather down here has been terrible. I mean. John Huggins stayed with me and he said, wow, he said, I've just come to a Scottish summer. <laughs> so it's... Oh, that's it's, nasty. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the weather in Melbourne was awful. Um, for Melbourne in November, it was cold and windy. So I know the greenkeeper was disappointed the first week that he couldn't get the greens where he wanted them, which was, you know, it's kind of, again, it goes to the obsession with scraping the extra foot out on the stint meter. I mean, they were, they were 12 yeah. and a half or 13 the first week. It was, it was hardly like they were soft or slow but it rained a little bit it was kind of damp it was so the greens didn't have the fire and they normally had and they got that later in the second week but yeah clearly it was difficult to manage that 
that two-week transition of what do you do, but you, know, you watch them on the second week cutting the grass on the greens. There's not much grass in the catches. They're, <laughs> they're not taking yeah. a hold off them. Mm. Do you know if they did anything, Clay? Did they have a rest day? Is that what you were getting at, Shanks, a rest day on the yeah, Monday just, Was there just, a rest day? Do we know? No, because I think they just—I think they were always pushing to get them to where. I mean, the Royal Melbourne and the the, the fame at Garnet was really came from the nineteen seventy two tournament, which was the first tournament that had in a long time there uh, on the composite course. Uh, when Crockford got the greens incredibly hard and fast, and then Trevino came back two years later and famously said, "Take a picture of me going out the gate because you won't see me coming back to this place again." It's a great line, isn't it? <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean that that was in an era when you know the fast Jeff that thing you posted on the stint meter a month or two ago yeah. when the fastest yeah. green in America was nine point eight. I mean you know people say the greens are fast now. I mean Royal Melbourne's greens, I promise they were they were fourteen feet in nineteen seventy four. I mean there was no grass on them. So you know they've always tried to push to kind of keep that you know preeminent position as you know the hardest fastest. And of course the problem is that. The club I play at, Metropolitan, which is a terrific course up the road, you know, there are people on the committee there who, you know, we've got to have our greens as hard and fast as Royal Melbourne. I said, well, what you want is you want the hardest, fastest greens in the world. There's nothing like this anywhere else, really. Mm. Is it to the detriment of the golf club? So you've been playing tournament golf there for a lot of years. Was what we saw the last two weeks as entertaining, less entertaining, or entertaining in a different way to what you used to see at Royal Melbourne in the 70s when you went to watch tournament golf and professionals play the course? Well, it's pretty much the same thing. You see greens that are hard and they're, and they're 14. There's, there's more grass on them. But it's the same thing. I, I mean, it's less entertaining because the course plays so short. That's really the issue is that when I was a kid, I mean, I know Sam Torrance told me when he won the, he won the 1980 PGA playing with Norman and Seve the last day, and he said, we all hit four irons into that green there. So the holes don't play the way they used to. That's, the, that, that's more of the the um, disappointment for me, but that's you know the same of every great course in the world. And even if they were hitting four irons, Clates, half of them would be hitting four hybrids, as we discussed recently. We've got a bit of support for that idea of pros having to turn up every year and prove they could yeah. hit a two-iron Clates. So a few people thought that was a good idea. Yeah. None of them were PGA people, sadly, sure or in, <laughs> in charge of of the tours. Uh, Shaq, as a, uh, back to that question, as a viewing experience, I know you were on the Golf Channel uh, during the course of the two weeks and you had a frank and open exchange of ideas with Paige McKenzie, who of course played the Women's Open here a couple of years ago. Tell us about, uh, about sort of what, what you were trying to explain to Paige and, and whether, and I don't just mean American golfers, whether modern golfers kind of get, get it and what it might be when it comes to golf course architecture. Well, she's not related to Alistair McKenzie. Uh, that 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 was made very clear. I did not know going into the segment that she would be doing it with me. And the the idea was, I had sent them an email knowing I was going to be on the show. I said, "Hey, could you get the aerials from the Presidents Cup coverage, and we'll go through a few of the holes, uh, like the first hole, uh, the three west, and I can." I didn't have a telestrator, but I could kind of describe as best as I could the. Uh, strategic interest of some of these holes and just it was just a chance to talk about the golf course and because the coverage would be on later that night and uh, and I didn't know she'd be on it it ended up being great because she she's played there and she's not a fan and yeah you can tell it's the usual tour pro stuff that it, it, it's all it's not all right in front of you you know and I I had to throw in a little jab about that's why you play practice rounds and <laughs> Um, you know, that's that the first hole is a great example of that it's just sort of there that it doesn't really look like a whole lot. And, um, but of course, once you, you watch it or, or play it, uh, it's, it's incredible what can go on there and, and how important the whole location is. And the genius of the course is, uh, in, at least in the whole, uh, cases like that hole or a few others where you really have to start at the green and go back. Uh, and, and so it's, it's just that constant battle where people who are good players make you trying to make a living they they don't view it as a fun challenge to try to uh, outsmart and outthink uh the architect they view it as the architect just getting in their way and uh it's it's a time honored tradition she's not <laughs> unusual i mean it's been going on since since the days of uh you know Varden Ray whatever you can you can go back to accounts and and golf pros have always been that way. Uh, there are very few Ben Crenshaws and Bobby Joneses and Jeff Ogilvies and 
Uh, Tom Watson, I would put in that category, and 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 Tiger sometimes, and Phil sometimes, who um, get excited about that that uh, that fun of trying to outthink the course or the superintendent and the architect, and and view that as a as uh, the the joy of their craft. Well, it's the problem of being a professional, isn't it, Clates? It's not about fun; it's about business, and wow. <laughs> not as much room in business for fun as when you go out to play. That first hole, uh, Clates, we saw at the World Cup on the Sunday was quite remarkable. The Channel Ten had the the uh, the broadcast down here in Australia. And it was, I must say, it was an appalling effort on their part. We saw more Winter Olympics promos than we did uh, golf when we were watching on the TV. But but player after player on that first hole on the Sunday. Um, just made a complete mess of it. And the ones that we saw who were successful hit irons off the tee uh, down the left-hand side there and, you know, put it in there to 20 feet, made two punts. But so many players drove it too close to the green. It was quite remarkable. Has this always been the case? Have people always made this mistake at that level that you get within 40 metres of the green there, you couldn't get it on the green? Yeah, well, well, the green did slope so much from front to back and it's so quick. And, I mean, Adam Scott obviously pulled the shot and made two. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... That was sweet. Yeah, the only know, way to stop it, I think. I, <laughs> yeah. I um, can remember playing that hole with Bob, with Bob Charles, who could really putt, and John Lister one year in Australian PGA, and we, it was down when we all drove it in that gully at the front. And and you can understand John Lister and I putting off the back of the green, but when Bob Charles did it as well, okay, that's fine. That, well, I'm not such an idiot. I mean, there are times when that green can get crazy and... But, the, but going back to Crenshaw's point about the first hole, which, which I mean, they need to reroute. First hole in the West. The first in the West. They need to reroute that golf course and make that, yeah. make that the first hole. And there's, and there's a really good way to play that golf course with that as the first hole, but it means you've got to finish on 18 West, not 18 East. But, yeah. you know, I mean, I mean, someone said to me, they were apparently talking about it on TV, saying that you know this hole needs a bunker. Now you, you, you have to. Well, it doesn't need a bunker at all. It's just the first hole. It should be the first yeah, hole. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, you know, and and the hole they do start on is a horrible hole to start on. Really, that's oh, a, you know, that's a hole that should be the thirteenth hole in the round, which is what it used to be. So you know, the members aren't happy with the routing. No one knows where the holes are now because there are five different versions of that course. So it's, it's all over the place. Yeah, um, they need to. Either go back to the old routing, but that had its problems, and, and, and the biggest problem with the old routing was that the holes in the back nine were so far apart that it was, you know, it made it really difficult to watch. You could only watch mm. one group; you couldn't kind of flip back and forward and see different. Ah. Yeah, you know, and, and there was never any atmosphere there because the crowd got spread over such a huge area. That was part of the reason they changed it. But there's a way better order, I think, that they've never used. That, you know, but again, it means changing it again. But, but well. You know, save that for uh, save that for when the PGA of America comes down yeah. and, yeah. and uh, brings <laughs> the PGA. Yeah, there. We've got to go to Port Rush yeah. first. Clates and I may no longer be around. Shack when the PGA no, finally yeah. makes it to they're Royal not, Melbourne. They're not going to Port. There's a better chance of the RNA going to Port yeah. Rush than, than, than the PGA. The uh, Clates, the one thing the uh, that I was trying in that segment on Golf Channel. Uh, you know, I I just I still of all the holes that I saw down there, the third hole on the west, the first. Uh, as they played it the last few weeks, uh, is the hole that has just stuck with me the most. And I wrote about it in our President's Cup coverage and because I, I sat there the last day with the singles. But it, it's just the same genius uh, as that's behind uh, the 10th at Riviera that that it's so tempting to play. You just Logic tells a good player, well, the shortest line to the hole is the best line. and And yet you can play that hole, it seems to me, if you're halfway decent with a wedge in your hand, all day long, just bunning it out, keeping it out to the right, giving yourself a shot with some spin, and using that bank uh, on the left side of the green, to, and you, you'll never have worse than a 25-foot putt for birdie if you do that every time. Just lay back, throw a wedge up, let let the bank kind of feed it back to the middle of the green. And yet, as we saw in the final day and, and in the last couple of weeks, there's just very few people do that. And except for the far right hole location, um, you know, really every other hole location, you can you can really get it closer, I think, than 25 feet. And it's, but that was what I was trying to describe on the show was just how how those great holes are the ones where you actually have to take a little bit longer route to take uh, a little bit of the risk out of play, and it dry and players can't. They can't reconcile that in their minds, and I think uh, 
I, I just, I mean, that's the beauty of the Tenth Riviera, too. And and that was that point that you had that quote from Crockford where, where he spoke about that. And there were lots of holes at Royal Melbourne where if you hedge out to the middle or the outside of the dog, when the pin's in a certain spot, like 18, the last hole, 18 east, when the pin's over in the left, you want it, you don't want to go down the inside line so much. You want to hedge out to the right. But right, right. when when the pin's in the right, you, you, know, you need to hug it down the left. But there are lots of holes where when the pin's in a certain part of the green, you have to hedge it out to the safe side and the long side in order to get close. So, so it's a... That was a great quote of Crockford's because, yeah, you know, it's easy to assume that Mackenzie Corliss, Royal Melbourne, always play the short line, but it's, it's not always the best way to play when the holes are in different parts of the green. Given all this, Clates, and, and, and certainly on the TV coverage, you know, a lot of Australian pumping up of our own ties and what a fabulous golf course and whatnot Royal Melbourne is. A few commenters on Shaq's site didn't necessarily agree and got tired of hearing what a great course Royal Melbourne is. Does it still stand up internationally, do you think, Royal Melbourne? And at professional golf, are people just being a bit narky by taking our jingoistic, nationalistic pride in Royal Melbourne to heart? I mean, the more I walk around there and the more we, you know, do work on golf courses and build stuff, the more I appreciate how great it is because you know how hard it is to do stuff that's that good. It's one thing to look at it and say, well, that's great. Then you go and do your own work and you think, my God, how great were these guys who built this stuff? You know, it's, it's, it's such an extraordinary level of sophistication and skill to build those greens and those bunkers that still look brilliant 80 years later. So, so it kind of in awe of the guys who built that stuff and designed it. But, yeah, the course is, you know, I think you can make a case that it's the equal of the best courses in the world. It's, you know, perhaps Pine Valley's better. It's even though it's a little overgrown, but that's an extraordinary course to me. But anything else you could you know Royal Melbourne stands up with the, with all of them really and can we appreciate this I mean in the modern age most of us get our uh, our look at great golf courses predominantly sadly from television on the odd occasion when professional golf goes there like Royal Melbourne is it possible to appreciate the thing about Royal Melbourne to me and what people say about Augusta is you, you just can't understand the scale of the property from TV and that's true isn't it Clades? it's far yeah. less impressive on television then when you stand there and you feel the breeze and you look at the size and the scale of it, it's a very grand sort of place, isn't it? You yeah. feel grand being there. Well, it's a huge golf course. I mean, that, that sixth west on on, on the, the, the fourth hole last week, that, that, I mean, we were joking that if that better land was in Sydney, they'd have jammed seven holes onto that. Yep, and two just houses. Like, yeah, <laughs> just marching holes back up and forward. But, um, yeah, you know, it's, a, it's a huge golf course. It's a big bit of land. It's massively wide and big and... I mean, it just boggles my mind that people don't think it's anything else but incredible. To the doubters, come out. Yeah. <laughs> come and have a look. No, you're then you're. It, it is, it, Shaq, I, I don't know whether you found this. I know the first time, when I went to the UK, I've only been once, but uh, growing up in Sydney and Sydney golf is not the most inspiring, as Clates will tell you if you get him going on the subject <laughs> after we get off air, preferably. Um, it, it's such a different sort of golf that you don't, you don't appreciate it until you sort of see it, play it, and understand it a bit, don't you? If you've grown up playing tree-line, narrow golf courses with lots of rough around the greens, very hard to appreciate just seeing on television the genius of something like Royal Melbourne or the beauty of it. I suppose, but uh, on the other hand, yeah, to Americans, it's it's uh, it's who don't like links golf. It's it's a it's a it's sort of a slightly Americanized or, or golden age architect style of of links golf. And so I, that's why I struggle with understanding how anybody you, – you just looking at it, it's just so much more compelling to look at uh, compared to what, what we normally see on televised golf. And, uh, and part of it, like I said, there's a romance for us. It's at night uh, at a time of year where a lot of people now have put their clubs away in parts of our country. And so it's got to – it just gets even better because of that. But, but even with that, that said, it's just uh, – to me, it's beautiful. It's not obviously. Some people think a course should be manicured, and so they don't like the look. Um, but then, when you just see some of the, yeah, you know, it's the thing we've talked about, Clates, a lot. It's it's uh, you see the ball on the ground so much more uh, around the greens and 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 shots landing and then feeding, and that is so much more interesting to watch uh, on television. And and we see so little of that. That's what it's it's probably the number one reason that Augusta is compelling and most people don't realize it. It's, it's, yes, it's, 
got a certain look and it's got certain holes, but the greatest moments in the Masters are when the ball lands and then we watch it we watch it feed and we see the crowd people stand up from their chairs and they they root it to the hole and I mean that that's just uh uh, it's phenomenal, and and we we don't get enough of that in, in watching golf on television. Well, and and, and what Roy Melbourne says, I know Finchie was talking to one of the American officials down there who didn't think the course was any good at all because there was no rough around the greens, oh. which is heartbreaking oh, in itself. Oh. But it um you know it shows what a great hazard short grass is. You know, it's yeah. such a great hazard when it's used well. It feeds the ball away from the greens, and, and it gives you a chance to chip it back off a good lie, but it's an incredibly difficult shot. You know, it goes back to that thing about so much golf in America around the greens. Are, there are easy shots played out of terrible lies. Where at Royal Melbourne, you see incredibly difficult shots played off perfect lies, and it's just, a, it's just another level of sophistication. Hmm. And it's, it is. It's far better to watch. Let's move to this week uh, briefly, Clates, and I'm sure we'll make some comparisons with Royal Melbourne. You did a very diplomatic piece on the Australian Open site about the Royal Sydney Golf Course, not held in great esteem amongst the golf architecture nerd community, Royal Sydney, a beautifully manicured golf course uh, and whatnot. But we're going to watch the Australian Open unfold this week. It'll be a very different sort of golf to what we've seen at Royal Melbourne the last two weeks, of course. Give us a bit of a thumbnail of uh, Royal Sydney. Well, it's narrower. It's... The greens are softer and slower. It's um, the real estate's more expensive. The real estate's more expensive. I hate to think yeah. of it. You know, it's a bit like LA Country Club, but they, they might be the two most valuable pieces of property in golf in the world. Yeah, it's, it's um, yeah. I mean, in my mind, it's overbunkered. The, 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 Jeff, you saw that picture of the first hole, which is a oh. short par four, where the great short par fours in Australia. Where and the tenth at Riviera, or the, or the sixth at LA Country Club, or even the you know the, the par three, par four slash you know, the seventh hole of the LA Country Club, the great short par fours. That the questions are really obvious. I mean, here's the question: it's really simple, but the answer is utterly confusing. You, yeah, you, you can play that tenth at Riviera and have no idea. You know, the, the question it's right there in front of you. It's really obvious what the question is. The answer is so. You know, to me, you stand on the, on the first of all, Sydney, and what is the question here? What, what the Greens not telling me to play from anywhere particular? There are, there are seven or eight bunkers out there. What am I supposed to do? What, what, what are you asking me here? And, and some people will say, well, perhaps that's a good thing. But you take the tenth at Royal Melbourne last week. There's just that one bunker on the corner, and the fairway's eighty yards wide. And mm-hmm. you know, you can go at the green, or you can go a hundred yards right of the green. But you've got to you've got to work out for yourself where you go. But so, you know, that's um, an oddity of that first title of Sydney. But, you know, it, it's a good golf course, but, it, but it's a much different course from what it was when Mackenzie was there when there were much fewer trees on the site. And it's, is it one of those clates that could be so much more than what it is? Well, I think, well, yeah, it's a tricky question for Not me. Not to say that it's bad, but could it be more than, than what it is, well, perhaps? Well, I think it could because I think it, you know, I think it, the great course on, on a bit of land that's probably not as good in Australia as Kingston Heath, and it, it it just misses where where Kingston Heath gets it, Royal Sydney misses it. I think in a sense, and you would you would need to understand Kingston Heath and how that, you know, the third at Kingston Heath, another great, you know, it's a simple, you know, really it's a two bunker hole. There's the, the bunker on the left of the fairway and the bunker on the right of the green, and the green sits across and. You know, again, it's an obvious question. The closer you play to the left bunker, the better the line of the flag. So it just you know, misses that by a bit, the things that make the similar courses in Melbourne. Because it's the closest course to a sandbelt course in Sydney. It just misses by a bit. I mean, it's, you know, and it's not a, you know, it's far from being a bad course. It's a, it's, it's a good course. But I think it, it just misses a little in certain spots. Mm. I'm just. I'm trying to think. There's not, not nothing you'd call a great hole at Royal Sydney, is there? There's there's some good holes. There's well, strong holes. There's some difficult holes. There's some. Well, and the one hole that could be great, and people will bash me because there's that idiot wanting to cut trees down again. <laughs> but you know, there's that beautiful fourth hole that sweeps down off the tee and then turns up to the left. And there are ten, there are six or eight trees down the left that force you to play way out to the outside of the dog leg, so it doesn't look as great as it could because if the trees were gone you would see that green up on the hill from the tee it would look amazing you could put you could put wherever you want on the ground you could put a massive bunker down there or whatever but you know it just it just 
completely misses really mm. that hole, and, and you know, it, it should be the great hole at Royal Sydney, and, and it's a good hole, but it's not a great hole, and, it, and it's you know for me it's ruined by the trees, but you know there's might take my way to cut trees down again. <laughs> Hello, if you, you know if you took Bill Hanser or Tom Doak or Ben Crenshaw, they'd say, why are those trees there? Yeah. You know, yeah. This would be a great hole if those trees weren't there. Indeed. Uh, away from that, and the course, actually, a lot of people who aren't familiar with the course will be... Uh, are you getting the Australian Open coverage in the States? Shaq, you're probably not. Are they yeah, got it on we have Tunnel? the same... Yeah, oh, no, no, we have... Uh, oh, okay. We have five hours of coverage uh, per night from 8 to 1 a.m. Eastern time. Oh, so it, I believe it's the same same announced group. Now, we don't have... We don't have I didn't find the coverage to be uh, unusually riddled with commercials um you got a different feed to us i think you got what we usually get from america is the international feed which has a lot less commercials generally you probably got the same thing we had channel 10 doing okay. the world cup here and it was hor- horrific you wouldn't have seen it on yeah. tv clates but it was genuinely horrific i, I think a lot I of people just turned off oh it was awful awful so, so yeah. baker finished Finch the world feed last week was that right yeah that's right he wasn't but doing yeah. the world cup we had grady yeah. radar and mark howard um and ah, okay. paul go out on the out on the course so yeah. we didn't get that that same feed that you got in fact, the same for the week before. You probably got the same pictures, but I don't think we had Baker Finch on the Channel 7 coverage from the Masters either, um, from memory. So anyway, that's all. By the by, did you visit Royal Sydney when you were here, Shaq? Uh, Clates and I, uh, um, we pulled up to it, so I got to see the clubhouse. And, <laughs> Lovely clubhouse. It's a delightful And that clubhouse. unbelievable neighbourhood. I mean, what, a, what, an, what an amazing place. Um, uh, in fact, I, I went back there. Because I found out that was the easiest place to park, and then just take the uh, the ferry into the city, but uh, and not not have to take out a small bank loan to pay to park. And it was oh my gosh, what a beautiful neighborhood, and uh, the clubhouse is gorgeous. But uh, and we I saw enough of the course from a distance to uh, to know that I would have just gotten aggravated looking at all the trees. <laughs> Indeed. And, yeah. Having said that, we're going to see some fabulous golfers on this course this week, including uh, Clates, the former world number one, Rory McIlroy. Now, there's a young guy, I think he's a member at your club, he's certainly one of the premier amateurs in Victoria, Ryan Ruffles. I think he's only about 15 or 16, isn't he? He's only a young kid. You caddied for him in a practice round with McIlroy. I think you played 12 holes on Tuesday. So tell us a bit about Ryan Ruffles and good on him for, well, for doing what he's doing, but then tell us what you saw from McIlroy. Ryan's a member at Victoria, where the home of Thompson and Ogilvy. Mm-hmm. His father was a tremendous tennis player of the Newcomb and Rosal era. He was a, I think he was in the top ten at one point. He was certainly a top twenty player. Who married late in life? He married a, an American girl who was also a tennis player. Uh, he coached Todd Woodbridge and um, Woodbridge and Woodford, Mark Woodford, who won the Wimbledon doubles title nine times, I think. So he was their coach. Uh, Ryan was born in America, came back to Australia when he was 9 or 10, lived in Canberra for a bit when Ray was coaching at the IAS tennis. So he played at Royal Canberra and, and then he came down to Melbourne and Trevor Hurden first saw him play when he was 11 years old. Trevor's a tournament director this week and said, wow, I saw this 11-year-old kid, he's really good. And so I've, uh, I've played with him for a couple of years now and he's one of those kids where every two months you see him, he's gone to another level again and, he, and he's just gone from a... 13-year-old kid who hit the ball, you know, and a small kid who, did, who hit the ball 200 yards. So, yeah, we played with Rory on Tuesday. His caddy pulled out the last minute. I'd organised a caddy for him this week, who, but one who couldn't get there till Wednesday, so I dragged his bag around on Tuesday. And <laughs> I gather Nike had organised for Ryan to play with Rory. And, um, That's I mean, interesting but, in itself, isn't it? <laughs> Well, yeah. he, he's a head-to-toe Nike player from when he was 14 years old. Um, he's, apart from the fact he played well, I hadn't seen Roy play for a long time. And he, I mean, the, the, the fact that he hasn't won a tournament this year is pretty amazing. If the, the evidence of the 12 holes of ball striking I saw was the, was the measure of how he's playing. I mean, he, I mean, he's just a beautiful player. Wow. I mean, I mean, he's long and he hits beautiful iron shots and, he had some great short shots. You know, he hit it over the back of the sixth ring into the bunker, and Ryan said, well, you don't want to hit it in there, and he flipped this wedge up that landed in the fringe and came down, hit the hole, and jumped out. And So, you know, he's a – I know Jeff was – you know, Jeff, I said, wow, I saw McElroy play that. And, you know, Jeff Ogilvy said, yeah, look, he said he's – he said, I mean, Jeff can exaggerate a little at times. He said, yeah, he's way better than Scotty, you know, Adam, but, but I mean – I hope neither of them are listening. <laughs> he might yeah. not have wanted that to go public. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, he was, I mean, you know, he's, obviously everyone knows Adam plays great golf, but 
I mean, I, Jeff's just huge on this mackerel. He just said, you know, wow, this kid's amazing. So, so you know, he's had a lousy year this year in a sense, I suppose. He, you know, he's fumbled through the, the issues with the management company and the Oakley sunglasses and changing his clubs. And But, you know, I, I can't imagine him not having a great year next year. It, there's a case to be made, isn't there, Clates and Shaq, that, in fact, McElroy's done the right thing by getting this all out of the way at the age of, what is he, 23 or 24. It's now done and dusted. There's no more. Well, there's no legal disputes on the horizon. You wouldn't think for the oh rest no. of his career, as long as he stays with Nike, um, that you know he can now concentrate on golf because all of this stuff's going to be sorted by early next year. No. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I think uh, the agents are about to countersue on. Uh, oh, that's not over. Next... I'm not saying that's over, but yeah, it's that's gonna, gotta, it'll be yeah, out of the way soon, and then that'll be it. I mean, maybe it, yeah. Woods has never been involved in this sort of stuff with the changing clubs and all sort of. He got all that out of the way and sort of. To, he did it differently to McElroy, sort of slowly, but he's never had those issues hanging around for the most part, has he? And I don't think that's hurt his career in any way. Hasn't helped McElroy yeah. all that stuff this year, I don't think. I guess I'd, the thing that bothers me though is that a lot of this he initiated, and there has been a. You know, he it's it's odd because he comes across. Uh, as a uh, as as a super person, and yet there, there's a pattern of behavior that suggests he's uh, he's got a side to him that's very uh, controlling and and maybe even a little bit neurotic about how his career is managed. And uh, so now, you know, maybe doing it himself, he certainly won't have anybody to blame. But um, I. I I hope he's getting it out of his system because he's got enough money and he's got so much talent and he's just he's absolutely he's fantastic. Oh yeah, and he's just wasting. I mean, I just cannot. I, I I'm writing him off for next year as well if he's going to continue this uh, this legal wrangling nonsense. Uh, I, I just don't see how with a trial set for a couple of weeks after the Ryder Cup, uh, you can you're going to have a good year with all that with that looming and and when you see the details of what they're what he's haggling over and what he's mad about uh well, this is the problem it, with it isn't it all of this is going to come out anyway, uh, let, let's not talk yeah. about that we got no real well no i think it's important because it it does speak to to how much that kind of stuff matters to i mean look at this guy with this amazing talent and and i i understand what jeff ogilvy's saying is that he 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 probably has more all-around talent than adam scott you know short game the whole package and but but look how this kind of thing can can derail a player even when they have that much talent it's uh, it shows you how how fickle our game can be i guess that's and that's probably the if you were to make a criticism of adam scott and god forbid that we could because he has done everything asked of him on this trip hasn't he clates and more you could not ask any more of adam scott no, no, he's been great yeah. beyond great he's been perfect hasn't he really <laughs> Um, in everything he's done. But the one criticism you might make of his game is that his short game may be a little one-dimensional, but he hits it so good he doesn't have to rely on it all that often. So that, yeah, that, that, that might be it. What about your, your, your young friend Ryan Ruffles getting to play with McElroy? How important can that be in, an, in a sort of an ongoing career? And, you know, when he looks back in five or ten years, wherever he possibly ends up, um, it's pretty big and important stuff, isn't it? I mean, aside from getting to meet someone who's so famous and obviously probably would no doubt hold in high esteem, you get to see where your game is compared to the absolute best in the world. You don't get a chance to do that from TV, do you? No, you don't. I know he played with Adam and someone asked him how, he's, how he thought he went. And he said, well, he said, no, my good shots are almost as good as his, but my bad shots are much worse. Mm-hmm. And, and for a 15-year-old kid, I mean, I mean, his good shots are, it's lots of good shots and they're really good shots. I mean, he's a really good player. I kind of wonder whether there was a headline in the Sydney papers today with a picture of Ian Rory on the back and, you know, you know, Irish guys are smiling as Rory sees the next superstar of golf or something. And, you know, it's kind of a lot of pressure for an expectation on a kid who's 15 years old and he's played some really good amateur golf down here, but he still hasn't won anything because he's a kid. He's, you know, he's playing against kids who are 20 and, they, you know, they, they beat him. But mm. he, he's, you know, I think clearly the best sort of teenager in the country right now. And he's a, and he's a really smart kid. I mean, he's really smart. You know, I mean, I mean, a friend of mine who, who's, who's going to carry for him this week was out with him on the range yesterday. He said, I mean, Craig's carried a lot. He carried for David Frost and Grady and you know, me for a bit. And, uh, and he said, wow, this kid, he said, this kid knows a lot. He's, he's really good, really impressive. So, so we'll see how it goes. But he's 15 years old and, you, you know, I think it's, you don't want to be piling too much expectation and pressure on them because they, I, I don't think it'll happen to him because his dad's a, He's a great golf parent. He stays out of the road. He's seen all the terrible tennis parents, and he 
you know, if he does anything, he goes the other way and make, makes a real point of not interfering and not getting involved. And occasionally he comes out to watch, but, you know, so they'll kind of sort through that. But, but it'll be interesting to see how he plays this week. But he's 15, you know, he's a kid. Well, that's right. It just dawned on me while you were sort of saying that. Like, that's one, thing, one of the things that's really changed a whole lot, isn't it, is the whole media uh, thing. You know, a 15-year-old kid who could play a bit wouldn't have got that sort of attention 20 years ago, would they? I mean, that certainly has changed in your time. Well, well there wasn't a 15-year-old kid who could play like that. Yeah, and, and in part, it's the the equipment. I think it, you know, I think it lets you get better quicker. But in, in part, it's the, the instruction, which is terrific. I mean, he, his golf swing keeps getting better and better, and, and he's he's figured out a lot of the short game stuff. He, he knows how to use the, the, the short shots and hit different shots. He doesn't use his lob wedge around the green much. He said, I just don't like using it. You know, I use it out of the bunkers, but that's pretty much all. And I pitch is my sandwich, and I've learned how to use that. And so, it's refreshing, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it, 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 he's wise beyond his years. But you know, we played with Ivan Landel, who comes down every Christmas. We, we've played a lot with him, because Ryan obviously knew his dad. And so so I, Ivan knew Ray, Ryan's dad. And, and you could, as a 13-year-old, he was just drilling Landel for information. Just a whole, to 18 holes, he was just... Getting wow. everything could out of Lendl, which was so, so you know, he, he knew the right questions to ask about choking and pressure and how you handle that and how you trained. And so, wow. so smart kid, which is important, I think. Mm. Well, it certainly sounds like obviously I've heard his name, I didn't realize well, not at a first hand account of just how uh, potentially good he might be. So, we'll be watching his progress with interest. Who's going to win this week, Clay? Who does the course set up for? It's quite mouthwatering, isn't it? You've got Scott going for the Triple Crown. Day, obviously, playing in Australia, thankfully, uh, which is a refreshing change for him uh, in his professional career. And McElroy yeah. looking to finally put one away for the, his last chance to win a proper tournament for the year. Yeah, uh, I meant... Uh, I Peter Senior. Peter Senior, yeah. <laughs> well, well, Reigns, maybe. I mean, I mean, I saw Pete in the range yesterday, and, and I mean, it's a perfect... You know, it's not that long, it's narrow. You've got to... So, the Pete will play well. But I mean, you can't go past those obvious three guys. I mean, I think Ogilvy needs to put in another. In an, you know, he was okay at Royal Melbourne seventh, but uh, with a good weekend. But he needs to play well and start getting some confidence. But you can't really look beyond those obvious three guys. I mean, Adam, Jason, and Rory. And Rory just—I mean, he murdered the, the, the seventh hole. Was a formerly long par five that he just murdered with a 360-yard drive and a five iron. So, so, so um. <laughs> That's the long one that goes down along the road, isn't it? Um, with the road, it's a long one. Yeah, it's yeah. probably the best part five there, and, and the greens are not particularly hard and not particularly fast. So, you know, if the weather, I mean, the forecast, I think, is bad tomorrow, but it's beautiful this morning. So, you know, if, somebody, if a guy that went out there and got on a tear, you could shoot sixty-four or five without too much trouble. It's, uh, it, well, I think it's going to be a terrific week to, week to watch unfold. I mean, it might not be the course architect's dream, but it's certainly as a golf fan, it's going to be a fabulous event to watch unfold. And you can only hope that those three are there at the end. Uh, Shaq, with, uh, with a couple of others to help make this, keep make the storyline interesting, there's a lot of good players in this field that aren't getting talked about. They're not in the class of McElroy, Day and Scott, but there's no, <laughs> no, nothing to suggest that there might not be an underdog get up and grab it from under the one of them. Well, no matter what happens, it should be a good story. I'm sure you're looking forward to watching it over there in the States. Yeah. Peter Senior, Peter, <laughs> back to back to back. At some point, yeah. he's got to hit a bad shot, doesn't he, Clates? When was the last time Peter Senior hit a bad shot? You've been watching him since he was about fifteen years old. Has he missed one yet? Uh, well, the, the only time Pete, Pete missed him was when he really lost his game. He, he, I remember him being at Glen Eagles in the maybe nineteen ninety, and he said, "I feel like I'm going to miss the ball." Wow! But he um, he doesn't go through those patches very often, and, and he, he's been working with a teacher here for. Gary Edwin, who was formerly known as Gary Player until he changed his name for obvious reasons as a golf pro. Um, Gary's been working with Pete for 10 years now, and he's really mm. helped him understand his swing, and he's tweaked it a little bit. And it's, It looks kind of odd through the ball, and, and it always did, but it's a really functional, effective golf swing that's worked. I mean, we, we were talking about it last night. Give me another player who's won professional events not came the Champions Tour in five different decades. Yeah, exactly. And, of course, it, you know, it, it cheats a bit because he won the South Australian Open in 1979 and the Australian Open in 2012. But there's, uh, we couldn't think of anyone who'd won events on the main tour in you know, five different decades, which is a testament to a swing that many thought wasn't very good. But if it, you know, if it can hold up for 
you know, the 33 year gap between when you first win and when you perhaps last win. That's a damn good goal swing for me. Yeah, well, don't forget. Pretty incredible. Well, and he rolled Jeff Ogilvy in a playoff at the PGA just a couple of years ago too. Yeah. And that to me is just extraordinary. That's uh, You never would have backed that that horse in the two-horse race, would you, Clates? Peter Senior over Jeff Ogilvy? I certainly wouldn't have. Um, well, over one hole, yeah, maybe. Well, true, maybe. Yeah, it was only one hole. That's, uh, yeah. That is very true. But, I mean, but you know, not to say he wouldn't have beaten him over 18 either. He tied with him up to 72, so mm, exactly. it was... Well, extraordinary character, one of the greats, uh, one of the greats of Australian golf. Gents, we must wrap it up. Uh, you've got to get to the golf clates, and uh, I've got things to do, as I'm sure you have. Shaq, been great to have you aboard, Shaq, and uh, looking forward to getting your thoughts next time around when we come back together for State of the Game. Thank you. And Clates down here, looking forward to reading your stuff on AustralianOpenGolf.com.au, Clates, and seeing you on that little Australian Open TV thing as yeah. well. Thanks, Rod. And that wraps it up for State of the Game, episode 32. We'll be back to do it all again in a couple of weeks' time. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to your company then also on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.